Good morning, friends. Good morning. So there's a story that's been floating around for years uh, about a guy named uh, Henry Ford. Uh, and Henry Ford, uh, at one point uh, in one of his big plants, uh, had a guy named uh, Charlie Stein, uh, Steinmetz come in and install generators to run the plant. Well, uh, those the plant was up and running, and uh, one day all of them come to a screeching halt in which Henry Ford was perplexed and uh, automatically reached out to Steinmetz and said, hey, we've, we've got to have you come down here and, and get these things running because we we're at a standstill. Uh, Steinmetz showed up and uh, Ford kind of followed him around the plant as he worked and uh, he was there for about 30 minutes and he would stick his head into a couple of things and he would tinker for a little while and uh, there would be a little bit of clitter clatter and, and then everything began to fire up and run. And uh, Ford was thrilled because everything was back up and Steinmetz walked out. A few weeks later, Ford gets a bill in the mail for $10,000 to fix these generators. And which he is flabbergasted and even frustrated. So he reaches Steinmetz and he goes, hey, this is, this is unreasonable. Like it doesn't cost $10,000 to do this. And to which... He goes, well, listen, it is what it is. Um, and so he said, well, I, I want you to send me another invoice. And he said, okay, I'll send you another invoice. And so he gets another invoice in the mail, and the invoice reads $10,000. But below it, it said $10 for tinkering. And then just below that, it said $9,990 for knowing where to tinker. That's what you would think as a smart man. Maybe you would even think that's what wisdom means. But that's not actually wisdom at all. Wisdom is what James describes in the latter part of James chapter 3. If you've been following along with us, we've been going through a sermon series through the book of James. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to James chapter 3. And we're going to pick up in verse 13. We're going to read six verses and study those together. Then uh, we're going to enjoy uh, the Lord's Supper together at the end of our service. And so this will be a sweet time of seeing a contrasting view of what uh, James is saying about a wise and prudent man and then what you would see as a foolish man. Uh, I think that as we go along today, you'll see um, that wisdom looks quite different than uh, uh, Charlie Steinmetz, that wisdom looks more like uh, one of two other type of men. And that's what I hope that you would get today. Uh, James is the very... Uh, It's towards the very end of your Bible. It's the 20th book of the New Testament. If you're the very end of the New Testament, that's Revelation. You can work backwards. You can go Revelation. Or if you're in Jude, you work backwards. First, second, third, Peter, work backwards. And so you're going to eventually get to... uh, First, second, third, John is what I said. I don't know if I said first, second, third, Peter. Did I say that? Uh, see, my mind is way ahead of my mouth. That's typically what happens. Uh, then you're at first and second, Peter. To go backwards, you'll get to James. And if you're James, chapter 3, that's the big numerals. The small numerals are the verses. We're in James, chapter thirteen or 3, verse 13. Here it is. Uh, James says this. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? He says, Is by his good conduct... Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. 
Now, last week, Archie Engeldow taught here on our Wills Point campus, and he talked about uh, what it looked like to be a man with a bridled tongue. How do you uh, have self-control in the tongue? Well, James is taking the same idea as it would apply to one who teaches the Word of God uh, and why there would be stricter judgment for for such a man and why you should have a bridled tongue because a bridled tongue, if not under control, can set forest ablaze or turn a large ship, all those things. It's the same thing. He just built onto it, and he goes, look, you can have a foolish tongue, and he goes, you can also be a foolish man. Or you can have a bridled tongue, and you can have a bridled life. And so the title of this message would simply be The Bridled Life. And he goes, how do you have a bridled life? Well, he said, you, you want to be a wise person. You want to be a person who understands the idea of understanding. And he goes, do you see those people among you? Is there a wise man, a prudent man among you? Is there one who understands? He says, you'll know by his conduct. So he didn't just tell you, hey, is there a man among you? But he even tells you how you just decipher and discover if there is a man that is wise among you. He goes, it's by his conduct. It's by his works. It's by the meekness of his own wisdom. And so what James is simply doing, he goes, look, just as you would look as a foolish man who lets his tongue go ablaze, he goes, at the same time, a foolish man is one who doesn't live a self-controlled, upright life. Matter of fact, it reminds me of some of my reading plan this year. I'm going through the Bible chronologically, and um, a handful of weeks ago, it's been quite a few back, I was working through the book of Judges. And uh, Judges is a time period in the life of Israel, this country, that God brought the Messiah, Jesus, from. And uh, it was in this span of time, about 350 years, there was a lot of foolishness among the people because they were being ruled by what was called Judges. And Judges kind of fits in the Old Testament, this little brief period of time. And it was, uh, it was Israel that came out of the exodus of, of slavery and bondage of Egypt. They come uh, to where they hope is going to be the promised land, but then they hit, have some hiccups and some, um, some really foolish things that happen. Moses doesn't lead them to the promised land. Matter of fact, he's led to the land of the Moabites. He's able to see across the promised land, but he never enters it. Then God brings about a man who he says, hey, Joshua, you're going to be the salvation of the people. And he goes, you're going to be Yeshua to them. And he goes, and you're going to lead them. And he goes, don't be afraid. Hey, be strong and courageous. Don't be dismayed for the Lord our God is with you wherever you go. And there is fulfillment and promise amongst Joshua and all this time. Then Joshua dies and it lands in the hands of all these judges. And for 350 years, you have calamity. And as you read through the book of Judges time and time and time and time again, you will see a phrase that simply says, and they did what was right in their own eyes. And as they did what was right in their own eyes, they have peril and they have sword, and they have danger, and they have challenges, and they have hardship, and they have division, and it is just a hard and difficult road. Now, in the midst of that difficult road, every now and then you'd get a a judge that was pretty decent. But for the most part, it was just a really challenging time. Matter of fact, the book of Judges is summed up in one verse, the very end of the book, 21 chapters of hardship. And in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, this is what it says. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, I know that you and I have a difficult time trying to understand a time like that. But here it was, they had no king and they all did what was right in their own eyes. Now, shortly after that, 
God would raise up after a guy uh, named Eli, a guy named Samuel, and the people would beg for a king. And they would say, hey, we want a king like every other nation has a king. And then you know what they would discover in their kingdom? They would be ruled king after king after king after king that did what was right in his own eyes. And so the nation as a whole struggled to find peace and fulfillment, and there was very little meekness of wisdom, as James describes. Matter of fact, it reminds us, if you're reading through our uh, church reading plan, we're in the book of Proverbs, and in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 25, and in uh, chapter 16, verse 25, Proverbs 14, 12, and uh, chapter 16, verse 25, is the same verse repeated. This is what it says. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end, what? Is the way to death. It, it all leads to death. And that's the idea of a foolish man. Interesting enough, if you've read Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7, it simply says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. So where does wisdom come from? Where does understanding come from? Where does the meekness of wisdom come from that James is describing? It comes from the Lord and not man. It's not us going, you know what? I'm going I'm to tie up the bootstraps of my, my, my shoes and I'm going to just forge ahead and I'm going to be strong and I'm going to be tough and I'm going to be wise and I'm going to get this stuff done. That's a foolish man. But a wise and a prudent man is not only wise and understanding, not only does he have good conduct, but he's also leading in the meekness of wisdom. Matter of fact, that's the last part of verse 13. And I'll put it for you up on the screen so that you can see it. It's the meekness of wisdom. Now, when you look at the word meekness, it's the Greek word proutes there, and it comes from the primary word praus. And the primary word praus literally means the same thing, meekness, or you might even see it in your Bible uh, as, as gentle, um, it's kind of the same concept. But really one of the primary ways you see that is the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say something that's very profound. And he says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. He says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, the idea of blessed are the meek, we oftentimes think, oh, blessed are the mild, or we oftentimes think blessed are the weak. So you don't think meek, you think weak. And that word there, Meek is the primary word praus. So it's where we would get the word in the Greek prautes from that seems to mean the same thing. Gentle or lowly or humble in heart. It's the same idea. The struggle is, is that when we see James talking about you'll know a wise man by his conduct and the meekness of his wisdom, what we oftentimes are looking for is a man who is gentle and lowly and never speaks up. We might even think about this type of man as one who's uh, in the company boardroom and, and things are getting heated and he sits over there and he's got mild disposition and he's well-mannered, but he'll never say anything. And that's the wrong word. That's weak. The word here is prouse or proutes is a better idea of a man who sits in the boardroom and he listens and he listens and he does far more listening than he does speaking. And he's not quick or driven to anger because he's self-controlled and he's upright. But there's a final point where he's had enough and he has to say something. And when he does, people listen because he's a wise, prudent, understanding man. And he is full of the meekness of wisdom. 
Now, when I think about that man, I don't think of myself. I think of Jesus. And the reason I think about Jesus is because I oftentimes think that some of us big burly men in this room misunderstand him. And I think there's even friends that maybe you are in a biker club with him and, and you guys ride the roads of the U.S. together. And there are men that as you ride together, they want nothing to do with Jesus because they see as Jesus being weak. And my view of, of Jesus, just in my studies of him historically and even biblically, I personally believe that Jesus could take every man in this room. And I'll, I'll explain why I think that. One, he was a carpenter. And a carpenter in that day was not just a strong man, but he, he had to, in many ways, deal with tools and concepts that you and I don't have. So if we're going to make a table. Well, we, we cheat the system a little bit, right? We have table saws and jigsaws and a multitude of tools in which were not available to this man. And yet in his humanity, he built tables and he built things for other people. And that was his livelihood. And so when I think about Jesus, I don't think of skinny, frail men. I think about a man who was strong and could easily take on a laborious task. That's the Jesus I see. I see that he's the man who could easily be whipped and survive it with shards of glass tied to leather straps, with metal and bone fragments. He is he is a man who survived what I would have caved into by strike 12. By three, I'm crying in agony. Please don't do this to me. By strike five, I'm ready to be dead. Yet he survives it. He is a strong man. He's the one who carries his cross. He's the one who willingly is nailed to a cross. And even though he could have come down and tempted to do, he did not. He remained. He was steadfast under trial. He was resolute. He was immovable. He was meek. Now, here's why I say he's meek is because he went to trial six times. And do you know what he did? He never said a thing. I would have spoken time and time again, right? I'm a foolish man. Maybe that sums up who you might be, right? But you might go, well, okay, well, but you, you're describing a strong man, but what makes him meek? And here's what makes him meek. To understand the word best, I think you have to think about a young colt, a horse that's under the age of four, and um, it's going to be taken by its master, and it's going to be trained. It's going to be broken. And so they might take a halter, and a halter is what goes over their head, and eventually they might put a bit in its mouth. They might bridle it. And the halter is to help bring about a, a tameness to where that horse could be led uh, the bit would be so that it could be in some ways controlled. Eventually, what the master wants to do is he wants to be able to get onto the horse. And it, through months and months of training, what eventually happens is this horse can be controlled. Now, when you have to think about that, you might think, okay, well, the horse, which was powerless and out of control, is now what? In control. And in, in many ways, you've got this powerful, stubborn horse, and yet as it's being tamed day in and day out, what eventually happens is that it becomes bridled. And when I say bridled, what it means is that it's under control. The question you've got to ask yourself about a young colt, or for a stallion for that matter, does it ever lose its ability to have power? 
So what happens? It simply yields itself to control. That is the picture of the great Greek word prautes. It is a strong and powerful object, yet it's bridled and under control. That's why I think Jesus is the best example of that is because he is strong and powerful. He is God in the flesh, and yet he humbles himself to be obedient to his father in every way. He takes on, is tempted in every way just as we are, yet he never gives in. So he doesn't doesn't just have a, a mild disposition. He has a physical strength, and he also submits himself to be self-controlled and upright. That's the idea. So Jesus is not weak, but he was meek. And because he was meek, he is a self-controlled and a wise man. I might dare ask the question, was there anyone greater in wisdom than him? No, there wasn't. And so as a result of that, he is the one that we should seek to learn from. Matter of fact, I think one of the verses that we could really stand to try to memorize is Paul writing to Titus. And in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, this is what Paul encourages Titus to do and be, and even teach his people to do and be. He says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, okay, breaking us, bending us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright. That word upright there means sensible, sensible lives and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's who we are to be. That's what we're to be. We are to be sensible, upright people living in a world of darkness where there is chaos abounding. We are to be immovable. We are to be upright. We are to be of sober mind. We are to be alert. We are to be on guard. We're to be watchmen on our posts. Is that enough imagery, friends? That's who we're called to be. Yet here it is, James moves from this concept, the meekness of wisdom in verse 13, to a contrasting view in verse 14, in which he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, hey, don't boast and be false to the truth. So he goes, you, you might look differently. You, you might not look like your savior, Jesus, who has meekness of wisdom, who is self-controlled and upright in the present day. He says, you might be something else, which rules with bitter jealousy in your heart with selfish ambition. Um, As uh, Paul wrote to the church of Philippi in Philippians chapter two, we might rule with vain conceit. So he goes, you're one of the two. And he goes, and if you're not careful, he goes, be careful not to boast in your arrogance, in who you are, in your own strength, because you'll be false to the truth. And here it is. He gives a contrasting view of verse 13. So in my opinion, Verse 13 is a picture of the Christ, and verse 14 is a picture of someone different. And the question you got to ask yourself is, if James is talking initially about the religious leaders and those who are speaking earlier in the chapter, and he's talking about being careful to bridle your tongue as leaders, and he continues this same thought, then the question you got to ask yourself, well, who would be leaders in that day that struggle to bridle their tongue? But even go further than that, who would be leaders in that day who would struggle to bridle their life? 
And you might think, well, that's the Barabbas, that's the, uh, that's the convict of the day, and yet that's not who I have in view. I have in view the one who is religiously zealous, but yet is selfishly reigned and ruled. They're ambitious. They have vain conceit. Matter of fact, this group of people who I have in view, which would be called the Pharisees, uh, actually want Jesus dead because he's competition. He's competition to the subset of rules and beliefs that they're pressing upon the people. And he's also competition to their very way of thinking. Matter of fact, if you don't believe me, let me just remind you what Jesus has to say about these religious leaders and zealots in that day and time. And here's the question that you have to ask yourself. Can a person in our current day and age be very religious and zealous and also be misguided? Okay, look, look, probably one of the most offensive times I've ever had in my life, walking through um, the city of Fort Worth, my wife and I were celebrating our anniversary. Couldn't have been more than our fourth or fifth anniversary. Um, and we're just enjoying um, pizza and, and walking down the street. And we have a guy with a megaphone um, basically land blasting every single person there in the name of Jesus. Um, and us, including everyone else in that circle, is going to hell simply because we're walking downtown in Fort Worth. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that plausible? Is that celebrated? Oftentimes. And I would just tell you, there are churches that if not careful from their own stage, you'll walk out of in tears and you'll feel like you are damned to hell because you showed up. Now, look, don't get me wrong. I'm passionate. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes I could be offensive. But the reality is there is grace in the cross of Christ and we should walk in that freedom. Now, let me ask you a question. Are there people who are going to die apart from Christ? Yes. Should we condemn them in such a way that they despise the cross? No. So we have to be careful about that, right? Like there's a lot of us in here that we didn't want anything to do with the church because what we know of the church or what we've come to believe about the church are a, a brood of vipers, a bunch of zealots that are proclaiming this this gospel of not hope. And because of that, you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, something that's false to the truth. So listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 23. He says this, beginning in verse one through four, he says, then Jesus says to the crowds and his disciples, and he says this, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Now, why does he describe it as Moses' seat? He goes, they, they've taken the chair in the VIP room. You know what I'm talking about? VIP, roll out the red carpet. Now, that's what they are. And so when everybody sees them walking down the street, they got a phylactery, which is a wooden box with scripture inside. They've got things tied to their arms that say, hey, look at me. Then people do. They look at them. And, and oftentimes a foolish person looks at them and goes, man, I wish I had what they had. Oh man, I wish I knew what they knew. And yet Jesus then says this, He says, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. So he goes, you ever heard a father say, listen to me, but don't do what I do? Because that's a foolish man. A really good father doesn't have to say, hey, look or listen to what I do, just follow me. Isn't that what Paul wrote to the church of Corinth in 
1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You got the picture here? So he goes, that these people, he says, they preach, verse 3, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their own finger. Let me put it in modern day. It's the guy who shows up in the boardroom and demands all of his employees to go and do things in which you've never seen him do. And not only have you never seen him do it, when he shows up, not only is he arrogant, but he's condescending. He'll cuss you, he'll yell at you, he'll belittle you to get you to do what otherwise won't get done because if you don't do it, he's not. And Jesus goes, that's the kind of leader that's ruling Israel. And so, friends, it was them doing what was right in their own eyes in the Old Testament. And here it is, they're doing what's right in their own eyes in the New Testament. And Jesus says, that's not the meekness of wisdom I'm looking for, but it's the bitter jealousy and the selfish ambition that's ruling their hearts. In verse 5, I won't read it, but he goes on in Matthew 23, and he just says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. If you skip down to verse 15, he tells them that they are hypocrites and children of hell. Now, here's the question. If Jesus is loving, which indeed is the most loving person there is, then how in the world could he say something like that? This meek, mild-mannered guy who is weak in a lot of people's minds just told the religious leaders of that day that they are hypocrites and children of hell. Now, why did he do that? Was he being mean? No, he was telling the truth. See, a meek man is mild in disposition and he chooses his words wisely. He doesn't speak all the time. But when he does speak, he does tell the truth. He's a truth teller. Friends, we live in a day and age where we do need to tell the truth. And we need to be wise about how we say it and we need to be winsome in our speech and our conduct. But there is a point where we have to stand up and say something, right? So parents, let me just kind of warn you in something. One of the things that we are tempted to do as parents in our culture is to be best friends with our kiddos. We want to be loved. We want to be liked. We want to be doted over because in some ways we find a lot of our value as parents. But friends, I'll just tell you that a great parent... The, the kind that we're to be, we can't be friends with our kiddos. Why? Because we are to love them, and loving them is to tell them the truth. It is to be wise and prudent. Uh, we are not to, to tear them down, but we are to build them up. Friends, sometimes to build the child up, you have to say, hey, listen, I love you very much, but one of the chief things that's happening right now that I see is that you are slothful. You're slothful. You, you don't contribute in meaningful ways. You don't pick up after yourself. Your cup, matter of fact, three cups are sitting right where you left them. You haven't picked up your towel or your underwear, your shoes. Matter of fact, you've got shoes in your room, my room. You've got shoes in the living room and in the bathroom. Matter of fact, we only got three rooms in our house and your shoes are in every room. Y'all relate as parents? Some of you kids like, yeah, I relate, yes. You can go around picking them up. You can yell and scream. Or you do a healthy balance of modeling the meekness of wisdom and also telling them the truth. It's a very difficult road to balance because after all, the picture that we're trying to follow is Jesus Christ. 
But at the end of the day, if you're not careful, you will be one of the two. You will be one of full of meekness of wisdom or you'll be one who is false to the truth. The reality is if you think about the cups that have been left out for three or four days, could you imagine parents grabbing one of those cups and then using it for your coffee cup? Like you look in it and you're like, I don't know what that is, but I'm going to enjoy a cup of coffee with it. That's how Jesus describes the religious leader. Continuing on in verse 27, he goes, or in verse 25, he goes, hey, they clean the outside of the cup, but they never clean the inside of the cup. So imagine enjoying your coffee every day with the same cup that you've not rinsed out or used or cleaned for a long time. He goes, that's a foolish man. It's the same kind of man that you take in the cemetery and you clean the, the tomb and you make it a whitewashed tomb. It's the prettiest one there, but you forget that that tomb is full of dead men's bones. That is the contrasting view. He says, a wise man is the one who looks like the picture of Christ and the foolish man is the one who ties cumbersome cumbersome loads on other people and they don't do it themselves. It's a picture of the Pharisee. Matter of fact, he goes on in verse 15. He goes, hey, this is not wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly. So he's contrasting. The, The wisdom of the Pharisee is not, it's not what comes down from God. It's not from God at all. This religious This religious look that's external only is earthly. It's not heavenly. It's unspiritual. There's nothing spiritual about it. It's not supernatural. It's natural. It comes only from man. It's also demonic, which brings into view what Jesus calls them. He says, you are children of the devil. In John chapter 8, that's exactly what he says. You are from the father of lies, who's been lying from the beginning, and you are one of them. You're children of the devil. This guy, the savior of the world, who loves everybody, is the one who looks him in the face, and in this meek, mild disposition that he has, he goes, listen, friends, you're children of the devil. That's a truth teller. And then he goes on, verse 16, James says this, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. He goes, if you want to look at wisdom, he goes, don't only look at the pure conduct, but look at the nature of what's happening. Friends, if your house is always chaotic, it's a picture that something's out of, out of, it's out of whack. If your workplace is always chaotic, it's out of whack. If your country is always chaotic, it's out of what? It's out of whack. You're like, I haven't used whack in a long time. It's out of whack. Confusion is simply the byproduct of poor leadership. Confusion is the byproduct of a jealous, self-ambitious leader. Order, grace, humility, fruitfulness is the byproduct of one who leads with winsomeness, with wisdom, And as James puts it in verse 13, the meekness of wisdom. That's why he goes on and he closes this thought in verse 17, 18 with this. He says, but the wisdom from above, which just implies it's God's wisdom, it's first pure. And the word there uh, is the word hagnos, which literally means it's free from carnality. So carnal is the flesh. It's free from the flesh. It's not just talking about purity in terms of sexual relationships is talking about like they're just a pure person. They're, f- they're free from the world. They're living in Christ. They're peaceable, which literally means that they are peacekeepers. They're gentle. The word gentle there in the Greek means equitable or fair. That They're given over, if you look at the next part, open to reason. 
They're the type of people that will come to the table. They want a sensible way to solve a problem. If you live with a neighbor who is not sensible, or, or better yet, you're the neighbor that's not sensible, um, that's a problem. See, are you always going to get along with your neighbor? No, but if you're open to reason and you're sensible, you're always working towards a solution. That's the type of person that Jesus is talking about or that James is talking about here. It's a person that is full of mercy, good fruits. They're impartial and sincere. And he says, and as a result, there's a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who make peace. He goes, those who go about doing the work of Christ, he goes, you'll see it. It's like Hansel and Gretel. When you follow the breadcrumbs, you'll find peace and you'll find righteousness. You'll see the fruit of that. And the fruit of righteousness is both order in the midst of chaos. It's also the picture of eternal life and something that's coming down from heaven in the midst of an earthly demonic world. And that's who we want to be. And the question you got to ask yourself, just as we kind of wrap up our time together, which of these people do I reflect most? Am I the person who exhibits the meekness of wisdom? There is this power that's in me, more namely than the power in me that is of Christ and not of me. And I live a self-controlled life, although there is something in me that could easily come out and not be good. I've bridled my tongue and I've bridled my conduct. The flip side is you might look one way, but yet there's something dark inside that's selfish ambition, vain conceit, and it prods you to demand a lot of others and you don't do it yourself. Which one of those are you? One leads to life, one leads to death. One's an imitation of our Savior, another one's a religious zealot that condemns everybody when you have a log in your own eye. Which is it? brings me back, and I'll close with this thought, in James chapter 1, when James just says, hey, don't be a man who looks in the mirror and forgets what he looks like, because you'll deceive yourself. And deception is a man who hears the word, but never does what it says. Who is that? That's the Pharisee. They tie up cumbersome loads. They put heavy loads on people, and they don't lift a finger themselves That's the problem. Yet here it is, Christ who demands that we come. When you're weary, when you're heavy laden, he goes, and I'll give you rest. Hey, take my yoke upon you. Come to me, I'm gentle, I'm lowly in heart. You see the difference? One says, come. One says, hey, let me, let me, let me pile it on you. We're one of the two. And may the Lord give us wisdom to see which one. And more than that, may he give us his spirit to enable us to be more like him. Because that's the key. Let me pray for us, friends. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, just for the text. And we thank you, Lord, for James, the brother of Jesus, who once did not believe and after the resurrection came to believe. And as a result of that, he gave his life even unto his death to serve you. He was a slave unto Christ. And as a result, Lord, by the leadership of your spirit, you enabled him to write this letter 
Um, Lord, to a scattered people in which we learn from today. And Lord, here it is. We too are a scattered people living among a land of people who don't know you. Lord, in darkness and in futility and chaos, Lord, we get to be set apart, consecrated unto you. We can be people of light, people of salt, people of hope, people of rejoicing. And I just pray, Lord, that we would look more like the Christ than we do religious zealots who are empty and deceitful and whitewashed tombs. Lord, help us to quit externally cleaning the outside of the cup. Lord, help us to deal with the inside. And so, Lord, even as we approach the Lord's Supper here in this moment, Lord, would you help us to be your people? We love you, and we thank you for this morning on this summer day in Texas. Thank you that you use your word to prick our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to wrap up our time together with the Lord's Supper. And our team of musicians here in a few moments is uh, just going to lead us in a handful of, of songs together. And this is a time for you as we kind of close our service to do a few things. One, it's to just take in a little bit of what we've heard. Oftentimes we don't reflect much on what we've heard, right? And so we're so quick to go get in the car and, and we're so quick to go get to mowing or to weed eating or to cleaning up around our place or to getting to lunch or, hey, going fishing. And then we, sometimes we just don't take enough time just to sit and just to meditate and to say, Lord, okay, what do you want to teach me from that? Like, Lord, which kind of man am I? What kind of woman am I? And so as they sing and lead, you can sit right where you are in your seat and you can just examine your heart and ask the Lord by his spirit to do that, right? Because we're not great examiners ourselves. Secondly, it might be just a time for you just to sing. Like you're just like, hey, you know what? I just, I'm full of joy and I'm so thankful for our King and you just want to sing. Hey, use that time. In the midst of all of it, regardless if you're reflecting or singing, whether you're sitting or standing, you're free to do either. We are going to ask that you'd come up and you'd grab the elements of the Lord's Supper, which are the bread, which represent the body of Christ. And it's the juice that represents the blood of Christ. And as you come and you get those, we're going to ask that you'd go back to your seat. And whether you're sitting or standing, just hold those because we're going to take all the elements together in a few moments. Now I get it. There's going to be somebody, you're going to get back to your seat and you're going to forget it. You're going to go ahead and take the bread and the cup. And listen, that's okay. Don't like, oh no, like, that's okay. But if you can remember, we're going to observe that together and then we're going to close our time. So in this moment, reflect, sing, sit, stand, but make sure you come and get the Lord's cup and this bread. Got it? it. Father, use this time to align our hearts with you and to help us remember that in the midst of a crazy day, there's a Savior who loves us. And you went to great lengths to give us a life and a future. And so may we reflect on the blood and the body of Christ in these moments. In Jesus' name we pray.